I'm just learning lots of math and attempting to do real math in JavaScript is a fun challenge. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 48 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Howdy. We also have Tim Caswell. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and when this episode goes out you're going to have about two weeks left if you wanted to sign up for my Rails Ramp Up course. You can find that at railsrampup.com. I'm working hard on that. This week we're going to talk about why JavaScript is hard. And uh, I, I think uh, it was Tim that came on and said, so we're talking about why JavaScript sucks. And I didn't want to call it that. But, you know, at the <laughs> same time, it's, you know, the, it's one of the, I, I think the reasons that people find JavaScript hard and the people, the reason some people say that JavaScript sucks are kind of the same thing. So if you want to think of it that way, go right ahead. But yeah, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that... Uh, I was at the users group meeting last week and uh, they talked about some of the things that make JavaScript hard. And I don't remember what they all were, but there were a few things that, um, you know, there are some concepts that are markedly different from what you find in other languages, or at least some of the concepts exist in the other languages, but they aren't kind of as important or um, as uh, like in your face as they are in the, in JavaScript. Anyway, um, the other reason is is that uh, I was thinking about when I first started the show. And when I first started the show, I was a web developer that was kind of like jQuery, woo! And I thought jQuery and JavaScript, you know, were mostly the same in the sense that the only way to write sane JavaScript was to use jQuery. And so I wanted to talk around some of the things that, that I've learned over the last year from the other panelists and uh, help people who are coming into JavaScript to understand the, the real power behind some of these other concepts. So that being said, let's go ahead and get started. I'm I'm a little curious as to what you guys think are some of the hard things that people run into in JavaScript. Like, why do they struggle with it? All right. So I actually spend a lot of time teaching programming. And a lot of, a lot of my students have background in other programming languages. And there are very subtle but very important differences in JavaScript and other languages that look similar on the surface. And I think that's what confuses a lot of people. Like if you come from the world of Java or even the world of Ruby or just some scripting language that just has more traditional classes, and then JavaScript's really going to confuse you because you you have this dynamic scope through this this value keyword. We're not even sure what it is, but it's not really bound to the class or the constructor like you think it is. I mean, yeah. how many people? How many people have been bit by that? I I even have articles, entire conference talks about what is this? What does this mean? <laughs> I've been bit by that. Yeah, that's and, probably the first thing in JavaScript that you have to swallow is that this is not what you think it is most of the time, or some of the time. Right. There's there is no static class binding anything. It's just functions and objects, and and then this thing called this was thrown in so that you could do class style programming and it worked most of the time i so need that princess bride clip you keep using that word i do not think it means what you think it means 
It's a great movie. I recently bought it on Blu-ray just for fun. Awesome. They, they actually made it quite a bit sharper. I'm not sure how. I don't know. Any, anyway. But yeah, it, there are a lot of cases still where I'll be doing something, I'll make an assumption as to what this is, and I'm wrong. Right. And it, it bites you It bites you first the, when you do anything with an event handler. Mm-hmm. Because the way this works, it, and the way that I explain it, is it's whatever is on the left of the dot when you call the function. So if it's some object dot some method and you call it, whatever's on the left of the dot is going to be this. Okay. And well, more or less that's correct. What, what if it's a function that you just call by name with no something dot function? Then this is undefined. Oh, really? Or, well, it depends on what version of JavaScript you're in. In non-strict mode, I believe it gives you window or global. And I think in strict mode, it gives you null or undefined. Either way, you don't want to rely on that. You, you don't want to use this if you call it that way. Okay. And so then there's bind, which forces this to be a certain value, no matter how it's called. And so a lot of times you want to bind your functions before handing them to event handlers. Or so what I usually do is I just wrap it in a closure. How exactly do you do that? I'm not sure if I have used bind. Here, here I get to learn something. Right. I need a whiteboard. This is not working. Okay. So, <laughs> so I mean, the way I think of bind is it's the same as just doing a manual closure. It's not, but it acts more or less the same. So suppose you're doing, um, all right, node. Because I do a lot of node. You do fs.readfile. You give it the file name, maybe some options, and then you give it a callback. And it's going to call your callback when the file is done loading. Well, suppose for your callback, you want it to be some method on some object of yours. And inside that method, you use this. So if you just hand it my object dot my method to the callback, it's going to call that callback in the scope of window or global, and it's going to break everything. So what you do is you just put a little inline function there, and then in your little one-line inline function, you say my object dot my method, and then manually pass in all the arguments. Or my object dot my method dot apply my object and then the arguments or whatever, but you but you wrap it in a closure. Okay. And bind does that more or less. Bind on a function returns a new function that's like the old one, but always has a, a set this. No matter oh. how you call it. That's very nice. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that that's a source of confusion for a lot of people. And I I understood it best when I started doing the object graph series. Where I just drew lines. I like, like, here's, here's this object. It has this property which points to this other object. And functions are just objects, right? Mm-hmm. They're just values. And I wrote this object that had a property called greet. So it's like bob.greet. And, it would, and the, inside the greet function, it's like print this.name or something. Just something simple. And then I made a new function, a new object that had a reference to the same function. But when you call this other one, it uses the other this, of course. And then I call it directly, and I call it with apply, and I, and I show call in all these different ways, and how the output changes each time. And people are like, whoa, you mean it's not bound to the function you initially declared it on? I'm like, no, it's not at all. There's no such thing in JavaScript. It's just a big mesh of references. That's all the language is. The bind method is uh, part of ES6, right? Uh, so before that, you have to use a shim. ES5, uh, yeah. ES5, okay. So before that, you got to use a shim, uh, but there's a lot of libraries out there that shim, and it's pretty easy to write your own as well. Uh, underscore has a really nice bind function. Uh, yeah, it, it's like two lines of code. It's not hard. Yeah. So I, I guess I have to ask then, 
which browsers have ES5 already, or at least some ES5 functionality. Nowadays, it's pretty common. I think Bind is n- as far back as did I six did I seven have it or was it I eight? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know, but I nine was when they got real JavaScript. I think <laughs> before that, it, before that, it wasn't JavaScript. It was JavaScript. That's debatable. <laughs> well, so, well, it's Shocker Engine versus the old thing. Like it's an right. entirely new engine. I would say IE ten is when they got real JavaScript, but <laughs> I won't say that in like two years when Chrome and uh, Firefox have lots of awesome fe- fire- JavaScript features and IE ten doesn't. So yeah, but I mean, as far as Bind goes, most browsers have it, and it's extremely easy to polyfill. So nice. And if you, do su- they, if do- you support those ancient ones, just polyfill, and you're good. So. You you said that it effectively creates a, a closure. It's not exactly how it works, but you can kind of think of it that way. Is that how the polyfills work? Yeah, the polyfills are just a closure. Yeah, that's awesome. Because, I mean, it returns a new function, so I'm just going to return a closure as my new function that acts like the bounded function, and there you go. Yeah, awesome. That sounds, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, speaking of browsers, that's another thing that uh, kind of threw me off. I've not been bitten too often by what's in one browser and not another because I'm usually using a library that will abstract that away for me. But um, it, it is something to be aware of and it's something that I worry about is that I'm dealing with multiple um, multiple implement- implementations of JavaScript and I don't get to pick which one my user is using. Right. And right. it's not that different than C programmers. You don't know what compiler your, your your people might be using if they're compiling from source. That's true. Or if they're using it as a binary dependency in their library, you don't know what Linux distribution, what patches they put in. I mean, it's a common problem of anything that has large reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I guess with Ruby and PHP and Python, it's less of an issue because there's basically, or used to be, just one implementation of the language. Yeah, and... At least with Ruby, I can speak to that a little bit. You you generally know what the limitations are of each um, implementation, so you can just deal with it. Yeah, and it's not an issue in .NET. You, that doesn't have that issue at all. Right, but then your reach is a lot smaller. Yeah, you can't you're, run, you're you can't run .NET. Boxes. Yeah, you're stuck in Windows boxes. You can't run it on your iPhone or your Chromebook or... No, 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 definitely, definitely not. But I'm just saying that that's something that... Anybody who's a .NET programmer isn't going to be used to this uh, issue. Right. I mean, yeah, the the blessing and the curse of the web is it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, that is that is why JavaScript is so popular is because JavaScript code can run literally anywhere, practically. If, it's, if it has a full operating system, it can run JavaScript. Yep. Right. So, so one other thing I want to get into, some of the things that, that were new to me when I started learning about JavaScript, like real JavaScript, not just what jQuery does for you, um, were closures in particular and um, just how to think about things since I was coming from a language that is very highly focused on class-based object instantiation. Mm-hmm. And and you don't really see that as much in JavaScript, at least not in the in the classical way that most other languages implement it. Right. Are what are you, are you differentiating between closures and cl- classical class based inheritance? Or yeah. Yeah. Buying? Okay. You're talking about two separate. Things. I am talking about two separate things. Sorry, I should have been more clear. So um, I, I kind of want to talk about how do you. How how do you do that kind of thing with uh, 
class-based inheritance sort of thing in, in JavaScript? So JavaScript has class-based inheritance. It's just not direct and doesn't work the same. There's <laughs> you have, <laughs> It has what you're asking for. It's just not what you're asking for. No, it's, it's, it's pretty similar. So you want to make, I'm, I'm going to make a rectangle class. So I'm going to have function rectangle with a capital R because that way Crockford doesn't cry. And that tells me it's a class because I capitalize the constructor. And then I do things like this dot width equals W, this dot height equals H and what, whatever. And then on your prototype, you put all your methods and that's a class. You create an instance using new and it's not that different than any class based language on the surface. Other than the gotcha where you want to pass off one of your methods to an event handler and your this is busted, it works pretty much like a class. And then if you want to do inheritance, then you just need to somehow set the prototype, I mean the underscore underscore proto, the, the real prototype of your dot prototype to some other class's prototype. Yeah. So in, I, inheritance I think, isn't very declarative, but it's there. I think that your description is probably, although true in uh, concept, like the... The concept, like the definition of class-based programming and prototype-based programming are essentially exclusive to each other, mutually exclusive. If, if you're prototype-based, you're not class-based. So even though you can think about them as classes, it's still not truly classes. For one thing, everything's an object. There's no, there, are no, there are no classes. But my input to that question is really that when you start off, you just got to think of it like it really does have class-based programming and treat it like you do, and then slowly over time learn the differences in prototypal inheritance, and then you can start to take advantage and understand more and get um, caught up less in gotchas as you understand prototypal inheritance more and more. Because so, you can replicate it with prototypal inheritance. I mean, there's a great article by Crockford where he, he talks about, and I, I, mean, I think other people have said the same thing, the fact that you can simulate class-based inheritance with prototypal-based inheritance, but you can't do the opposite. You can't simulate prototypal inheritance with class-based inheritance. So you can treat JavaScript like it's a class-based and then using just patterns that people have established. And then over time, you can start taking advantage of what prototypal inheritance gives you. Right. I mean, it depends on what you define a class as. In, right. in, in some schools of thought, a class is a strict separation between behavior and state. Your class has your methods, your object has your state, and you don't mix them. Like you, you can't put a, you can't put a function on an object and you can't store state values in your class. And the reason for that strict separation is they believe that it makes for cleaner code. So if that's your definition of a class, then no, there's, there's no strict separation at all in JavaScript. A function is just a value like any other value and you can inherit them from your prototype or not. That's an interesting definition. I've never heard that one before. But in practice, and especially if you want to make it run fast on V8, because of the hidden class implementation, if you write it like a class, it's going to be very fast. Yeah. Well, doesn't that that, that definition um, might work with JavaScript versus, say, Java or C Sharp or C, right? But in like Ruby, it doesn't quite match up because Ruby you can add functions to objects. S no, you can I add functions to the eigenclass of an object, but that's still a class. Yeah. Okay. So you can't take but, an existing object in Ruby. I can't. I can't remember Ruby. I dabbled with it a while ago. You can't take an existing object and just add a function to it. Well, you can, but yeah, behind can. the scenes, it'll create a new class. Oh, it creates a new class for it. Okay. a new class just for that one object. I see. I see. 
So, I mean, it's, it's flexible, but it's still class-based. Whereas JavaScript, I can just put a function directly on an object, and it's just a reference to a function. Right. It knows nothing about classes or constructors or anything. It's just a reference to a value. Right, but that doesn't modify the prototype. So if I effectively inherit from that object, then I don't get that function, right? Right. Well, if you inherit from the modified object, you'll get the, the new pro- function in your prototype, because you can... Yeah, depending on how you do it. I mean, yeah, JavaScript is prototype, and it's, it's, it's a very simple system once you learn it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not what it appears, especially with the Java syntax and the new keyword and... Yeah, the new keyword is is a brain bend for me because it does does not do do what I expect. What does new actually do? Who who knows that? It does a lot, by the way. Yeah. So I've got this. I've got this function. It's just a function, right? A constructor function is no different than any other function, other than we capitalize them for convenience. Right. And that function happens to have this dot prototype property, which, by the way, all functions in JavaScript have, even ones you don't use as constructors. And that prototype property has this hidden dot constructor property that points back to the function. So this, these two objects intertwined is what makes a class. So what new will do is you say new, give it a function, give it some arguments. It will now create a new object that inherits directly from the dot prototype of that function. It will then call that function with this scope of this newly created object. And then depending on if you return undefined or not undefined affects what the result of that new operation is. What do you mean? What happens if you def- return undefined versus not? So if you return a value from a constructor, then that'll be what your new results in. So even though it created this new instance of the object from the prototype, it won't return that. It only returns that if you return undefined from your constructor. Or essentially return, or don't put a return or, statement. Or don't return, which is the same thing. Same thing. Which is yeah. actually very useful, because a lot of times what I'll do is the first line of my constructor, I'll say... If this, if not this instance of, and then the constructor name, return new the constructor name of my arguments. Right. We use that here for caching, so we can basically try to construct an object. If that object already exists, we just return the existing object rather right. than create create a new one. Right. For, for, like for models. Yeah. yeah. We we do it from we do it for models because we cache our models fairly extensively. In my in my parsers, I do that for my for my tokens and my lexers. If it's the right. same string, I always want the same instance. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very nice. You can return another object instead of the one that it just made. But all of that complexity is in, well, new. It kind right. of calls the function, but it calls it in a really weird way. And it makes it look like you're creating an instance of a class. So inheritance and construction make JavaScript hard, but closures are another thing that make JavaScript hard, which is funny because I think closures don't necessarily by themselves, you know, it, Closure is just a feature of the language. So the fact that there are closures in JavaScript doesn't necessarily make JavaScript hard, but everybody no, uses closures. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they make they, it very powerful. For, well, everybody it, uses them. Yeah, and it, it's a funny... Sorry, I, was go gonna, ahead. I was going to say, I've seen closures in other languages. For example, Ruby, if you create a proc, it creates a closure. And, and a proc is effectively a function. But only procs do, right? <clears throat> yeah, I don't think lambdas do. So, anyway... I'm trying to remember... Yeah, so like in C-sharp, they have lambdas that are closures. And you can close over variables and then have those variables that you're closed over be accessible later on if you pass the lambda round. And I had no idea that lambdas could do that because in .NET, you don't use lambdas for that. 
Right. And it's the same in Ruby. I mean, most of the time you're going to create a class or an object and, you know, you're just going to give it some instance values or instance variables and it'll just do what it does. Right. So it has another mechanism for holding on to those values. It's the paradigm of the language, right? In JavaScript, we use closures all the time to do all kinds of stuff. And part of that is to compensate for the fact that uh, context isn't guaranteed, that this isn't guaranteed. So we use closures to compensate for that a lot. And the reason that your this changes on you is because you're using your your methods as callbacks. Well, every JavaScript runtime I know of uses non-blocking I.O. The JavaScript, everything's async. In Node, everything's async. And so you're using callbacks a lot. Yep. If you do in dot for each on an array, that's that's a callback. Yep. And so, yeah, I mean, while the this in JavaScript can do the same thing as the instance in class languages, it's it's going to bite you all the time. Right. Yep. And that's another thing that makes JavaScript hard is the fact that it's asynchronous, and that's a lot different from pretty much most other languages people are used to. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, um, it, you know, it ties back to what Tim's saying about this, and some of the other things that we're talking about with closures, you know, I think this is where it really comes to a head is that um, in a lot of cases, if I have work to do in JavaScript, I'm going to I'm gonna do it through a series of callbacks instead of a synchronous, you know, do this, then do that, then do that, then do that. And just know that the, the virtual machine or the compiled code is just going to march through that uh, sequentially immediately and then come back with a value. And uh, the fact that the context changes with every callback is is what really throws people, I think. Because right. asynchronous versus synchronous, I mean, what it really comes down to is, okay, I'm going to throw out there that I need work done, and, uh, you know, it'll happen eventually instead of, you know, knowing that the call is going to happen right away. But it's that context switch that really just, you know, gets you confused because it's like, oh, well, I'm doing this, but I'm doing it in a different context and I'm doing this in a different way and this isn't what I expect it to be and I may or may not have closed over what I need and it gets tricky. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I think is harder is variable scoping. Like ignoring this, I I often write code that has none of this in sight because, well, it's complicated and I don't like it. But ignoring that, you still have weird variable scoping. Like I remember this one bug I had where I was closed over this variable, and then I had this massive function. And the first line of my function, that variable I closed over, was undefined. But I was like putting console logs everywhere. The line before I call my function, that variable had a value. And then on the very first line of my function, it's now undefined. What changed? Well, it happens to be that 100 lines down in my code, I had a var statement by the same name. <laughs> and var statements hoist their declaration up the entire function body and that includes var statements inside for loop heads inside for loop bodies like ifs and fors those aren't new state those aren't new scopes that all shares the so, same scope as the function is not that a lesson on not to make your functions 100 lines long well yeah but <laughs> <laughs> can you explain hoisting really quickly right so with a var statement, that variable is defined for the entire scope of the function, no matter how far down the function you actually put your var statement. The compiler is going to take it and move it to the first line. Okay. And this is why a lot of best practices say put it on the first line, because that's what it's going to do anyway. At least then you can see it. And mention the blocks that uh, don't scope, like four blocks. Right. And- 
So, so blocks, the difference between a block and a function is a block you can, you can break out of, you can continue out of, and you can return from it, it'll return to the function. So a block and a function body are very different. But blocks in JavaScript don't have scope. They share the scope with the function they're in. Okay. So, Unlike most other languages. Right. So like you have a for loop, you need this variable for your iterator. Well, that variable is now global to your whole function. But with, it, with ES6, we're going to be getting the let statement. Right, like and let scopes a little sane, so, more sanely. Yeah, let will scope within the for. So that if you do a for i, which everybody likes to do, you can do, you can declare the variable, know that it's local to that. Right. Yeah, that's that's another one that I, I keep seeing demonstrated over and over and over again is the for loop, and then it relies on i somewhere in there. And so anyway, it, it always, i winds up being the, you know, whatever uh, whatever count you went through in the for loop plus one. And anyway, so when it when you finally... It's usually when you're sticking something into something else. I, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but yeah. I've seen it, yeah. So so you, they wind up wrapping a function around it so that they can close over I so that they can, you know... Oh, that case. Yeah, yeah. that's a, that'll bite you real yeah. fast. You have yeah. to... Yeah, if you want to create scope, you basically have to make a self-calling function. Yeah. Because very often, if you, if you create a closure inside a loop, you want the scope of that loop from that iteration. If you don't, you'll get whatever the scope was after the loop is done. Yeah. And, and that, awesome. that trick is so obscure to anybody who isn't a JavaScript programmer. Because I don't know any other language where you can sit down and say, uh, define a function or define a method, and then inside there you define a function or define a method without using some other metaprogramming trick to do it, and in JavaScript, it's just oh well, I'm just going to function this blah blah blah, and, right? And it's, but even even it, that, it won't bite you unless the closure you create inside the loop is called asynchronously after your loop is done, because if it's called while if it's called synchronously like directly, then your scope is still what you want. But in JavaScript, there's so much asynchronous callbacks that that particular combination will bite you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Scope is scope is interesting. This is why I'm creating my new language to not have this. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other things that you guys can think of that people just run headlong into and then go, Whoa. I would, <laughs> I would love to talk about numbers. Numbers? Okay. Yes. I don't see many people doing heavy math in uh, JavaScript. Is there a reason for that? Um, well, JavaScript has one number type. Okay. And that number type happens to be IEEE double whatever floating point which is a 64-bit floating point. And what that means is is it can be an accurate integer up to 2 to the 53, which is a pretty big number. And it can do negative, and it can do decimals up to a lot of digits. So it seems like the ideal number, right? Uh-huh. Unless you're dealing with like 0 0.2 and 0 0.3. Suppose you want to add, suppose you have like a shopping cart in your web page, and you want to add up all the prices of your various things. Well, because of the way floating point works, it's it's a base two system. You can't represent numbers. I think zero point three is one of the numbers you cannot represent. No matter how many digits you have in the base two system, you can't represent that. Really? And so you get so you get these floating point errors where you add to like zero point seven and something, and your answer is now this fifteen digit long thing that's wrong. <laughs> really? Yeah. The yeah. numbers are not precise. And so well, Ruby has that same problem. Yeah. Hi, AJ. Yeah, anything anything that does uses floats as your numbers is going to have that problem. And, you know, 
the web and shopping carts and online shopping, people like it when their totals add up to the right number. They get kind of mad when you're charging them the wrong amount because you can't do math in JavaScript. Oh, come well, on. How I, many I have... times are you charging someone a billion dollars? Even if it's off by two cents, that's enough to upset someone because it's but not it's, right. it, it could only be off by two cents if you're charging them a billion dollars. I mean, because... The best way to do it, of course, is to multiply by 100, do everything in cents, and then divide by 100 when you display it to the user and round it. But even if you're doing like your basic shopping cart math, you're not going to screw up on. Now, bank account math, you might screw up on. But well, I, could, do you really screw up on basic shopping cart math? Because I don't well, think you do. So here's what messes you up. So in just an addition, you can't be off by more than a penny. But then you're like, you calculate your price per item, and it's I'm ordering fifty thousand units of this. So then you multiply that by fifty thousand, and now your error just got fifty thousand bigger. Well, Tim, can I ask you the last time you ordered fifty thousand of anything? <laughs> Tacos. Tacos. So I mean, just, I, just I last week. I believe it's a valid problem for the server side, and I believe it's definitely an annoyance when you're doing checking because, like, you say, "Oh, well, when this number reaches 500, then stop," but it's actually 49.9999999996, and then like you have an error in your program where you go above your limit or you go below your limit. Like, I've run into that for sure. Well, but I don't necessarily think that people get charged the wrong. Yeah, knowing about it's important for rounding. So well, you just want to know that you yeah. round. Yeah. The, the if, you, if you want to reproduce this, it's really easy. Go to your browser, just type in like 0.7 plus 0.2, and you can see. Yeah. The, there's the, a lot of like there's a lot of other ones that it don't show up. You type in 0.2 plus 0.2, it actually comes out to 0.4. Yeah. So yeah. 0.1 plus 0.3 and plus and 0.1 plus 0.7, or 0.1 plus 0.6. Yeah. There's I think. lots of them. Yeah. But the the thing I really want to point out, AJ, is that. Yeah, I'm not going to go and order 50,000 of something, but I know businesses that do, and they do it right. online, right. and it can be a problem. So and, okay. it, it does make sense. There's, and there's a, more, there's a more common problem that just completely breaks your code. Mm -hmm. Suppose you have logic that says, well, if the amount equals this exact amount, do this thing. Yeah, and that's what I was saying earlier with the, the 500 bit, you get 499.999, because I've run into that, and it's like, you know, it takes a long time to debug before you figure out, like, oh, yeah, can't do floating point math. So JavaScript has this crazy type coercion double equals operator that'll say the string one is equal to the number one. But if you say 0 0.9 equals 0 0.7 plus 0 0.2, that's false. So I think that another thing that people run into that, that, that is a good practice to get into is just using triple equals all the time. And yeah, don't, don't use the coercion unless you need it. Yeah, don't then, you, you don't need it. So, so what what is the difference between uh, double equals and triple equals? The the triple equals will check types first, okay. and if they're not the same type, they're not equal. Whereas the the double equals will coerce them to the same type and then compare them. Is it like Ruby in the sense that you can say um, uh, a number triple equals um, integer? No, it's not. It's not for types. It's okay. So, so it, you, it does it does a type check and a value check. Yeah. So so most likely it was for web forms. So mm -hmm. I have this form input input the quantity you want, and so they type in this text area or input field this number, and then in your logic, you don't want to manually convert that to an integer. You would just want to say does what they entered double equal five. Yeah. And JavaScript will say, well, that's a string. I'm going to parse it as a base 10 number. And oh, look, it's five. So it's equal to five. Yeah, that, that string five equals the number five. 
Right. It's extremely convenient for that type of use case. Except but, for when they prefix a leading zero. No, I think that'll be fine. But there are. And, oh, and does it's, it? And it's really, it's really loose too. So if I put like zero five frog, it'll it'll parse that as the number five instead of throwing an error. Right. This is just throw it through parsint or something. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You have to read the spec to see the exact mechanics. But remembering all the so, different rules is is complicated. Okay. So so we've talked a lot about why JavaScript is hard to learn. But there's a whole section of crap that makes JavaScript hard to program in once you get past the learning curve, you know? These sorts of things, these are things that you encounter in the first year that you're working with JavaScript, but then you move past that first year into bigger, more complex problems that are being solved right now, and there's just a huge section of things that make JavaScript hard for that kind of problem, even so just once you've learned JavaScript and know JavaScript. Right, so the things that are hard even once you know what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Example? The top of the list is packages. No package management. Let's stay out of that wormhole, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because of last week? That can be an entire five episodes. But, but yes, package yeah. management, especially in the browser, is not a good situation. You know, Paul Irish just had this short little uh, YouTube video that he posted because somebody sent him an interview questions, and he went on a walk with his camera he's holding on his face and talking about stuff, and he just briefly mentioned package management, and he just said this great thing because of the lack of package management. People are solving the same problems over and over because they don't want to depend on other people's packages because package management is just a solution that isn't well solved yet. So... Anyway, that's that's one of the things that makes JavaScript hard. You have to you have to deal with packages when you get bigger out problems besides, you know, a little bit of animation in your page. And you have to understand that once you ask someone help on package management, you've probably just opened a, a can of worms in whatever <laughs> yes. form you're in. Yep. And that and that does slow you down because you just want to get your work done. Like, what's the best package manager? And oh, I just got ten opinions, and now I started a fight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Is isn't it pretty cut, pretty cut and dried in Node as far as just using npm? For the most part. But you're, you're talking about specifically in the browser. Yeah, in the browser, it's not a good story. There are worlds of opinions, and yeah, it's still a fight. It, it seems um, like there's mostly just two or three, though. I mean, I would say AMD is the clear win at this point. Like, there's some of us, like myself, we want to use the common JS-style packages, but AMD is kind of the clear win. Require.js is, you know, it's it's got the market, really. I've heard quite the opposite from many people, so <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we're having a, an episode about this shortly, I, I believe. Yeah, we should have okay. that religious war. But Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, I'm, I'm definitely on the religion side of the common JS, but that's just my perception is that required JS wins. But anyway, so let's I'll, move on to other things. Let's move on to other things that are hard about once you know JavaScript. I was going to say, is that like I was I was raised a Catholic, but I'm practiced as a Mormon or something? <laughs> <laughs> All I, right. Anyway, I, actually, I was raised as a Baptist, and I do practice as a Mormon. Anyway. Right. So, going back to numbers, I've done JavaScript since the '90s. I would hope I know the language because I teach about it. I still learn things every now and then, which is amazing. But I've been doing a lot of crypto lately, and most crypto is based around 32-bit integers. Oh no! Oh wow! Which, well, at least they're at least they're not 64-bit. Because, like well, I said, the number type in JavaScript cannot represent 64-bit integers. Well, it can't really represent 32-bit integers. It can only represent 31-bit integers. No, it can do up to 53-bit. Well, it kind of, uh, except that the coercion makes... like it when, 
you said crypto and I'm thinking like bit shifting and stuff and then you have right. to like convert stuff into a string because it can't represent a 32-bit integer. It can only represent a 31-bit integer when you're bit shifting. So to get that last bit, you have to convert it to a string because I've, I've done some stuff with bit shifting in JavaScript and found out the nasty way that your numbers all of a sudden become negative for no reason. But that's not oh. a problem. You're the, the, and yeah, so I've been dealing with this a lot. And yes, as soon as you get over, as soon as your 31st bit is high or the first bit, whichever 31st, 32nd. Yeah, because it's. Are you little Indian or big Indian? Bits are little Indian, I think. I know they are within a byte. I'm just going to assume they are within the 32 bit word. So yeah, you know, the high bit, the one that's the sign bit and signed integers. Uh huh. But if you're doing bitwise operations, it doesn't matter. It, it, it can look like a positive number to JavaScript. It can look like a negative number to JavaScript. It's not going to matter because all your bitwise operations treat it the same. It's still the same 32 bits. And you can force the JavaScript representation to be signed and unsigned by using the triple right shift operator zero. So you take your negative number and do greater than, greater than, greater than zero, and you now have a positive number with the same 32 bits. So, I mean, you, you, get, you get to learn all these different tricks and then how they perform differently in different browsers and different runtimes. And, and you just say, why can't I just have a 32-bit integer that just works as a type? Because, well, then JavaScript have multiple number types. And that would be a different language. <laughs> <laughs> Don't most or, other languages give you different number types, like floats versus integers? or Most scripting languages don't. Most static languages do. Yeah. That's pretty much where the split is. Yeah. And Does then Ruby the, give you different numbers other than big number? Um, you have fixed num and big num. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. But yeah, it, it has more to do with how big the number is rather than whether it's floating point or not. Yeah, Ruby right. will will switch between them internally, which is what JavaScript engines do too. They'll switch between 32-bit integers and floats. But as far as the spec goes, they're always 64-bit floats. The other thing related is strings. Who knows how strings are encoded in JavaScript? Uh, wait, um, I know this one. It was in Dave Herman's book. Talks yeah, about exactly. you should always treat strings as um, an array of characters. An array of what? I can't remember exactly how Not he said characters. it. Characters is a different word for it in Unicode speak. Yeah. Because characters can contain three multiple three bytes, bytes out of BMP characters. Yeah. Right. So so basically, according to the spec, a a character in JavaScript strings is 16 bits. Okay. Well, there's there's more than two to the 16 Unicode characters. So that's a problem. So these bigger characters are are multiplied by two JavaScript characters. And But if you use length or like any of the string operations in JavaScript, it's going to treat those as two, as two separate characters, even though in Unicode they're one. And then suppose you want to store some binary data in a string, which <laughs> you can do if you're careful. But Unicode does not look the same as as like 8-bit ASCII. Right. And so, I mean, this is why in Node we added the buffer type. And in the browser, we now have buffer array and typed arrays and, and all these neat binary safe types. Because JavaScript strings are, I think the format is called UCS16. I think that's the official name for it. But it's this special 16-bit Unicode encoding. And then everywhere else in the world, when you serialize it to a string, is UTF-8, which is this variable length encoding. And if you want to convert between them, you can do these really clever hacks using escape and URL encode, and it works pretty well, actually. Hmm. 
But the, the secret I found is just understanding that a JavaScript string is really an array of 16-bit values. Right. Yeah, Dave Herman's book, uh, Effective JavaScript Talks, has a section on that. That's really good. Uh, if you missed our episode on that, you should definitely listen to that, our episode and then definitely buy that book if you're doing JavaScript development. And that, that book is also really good at getting over and learning a lot of the things we've been talking about that is just hard in JavaScript to learn is these little nuances that can get you like numbers and strings and stuff. He talks a lot about that sort of stuff. Really good book. Yeah. It is a good book. Um, go ahead, Chuck. So assuming that uh, you guys spend quite a bit more time programming JavaScript than I do, or maybe programming different things in JavaScript, since most of the apps I work in these days have an XJS front end that's more or less the app, and then you have an API built in Sinatra or Rails, which are Ruby frameworks on the back end. Do you feel like some of these things are things that should change in the spec to make it easier for people to come in? Or is there a downside to that trade-off? So, like I said before, the blessing and curse of the web is it's everywhere. So, you can't change the language. If you, well, if you, that's only partially true, right? We're getting let to compensate for VAR, the yeah, variable we're, hoisting. We're adding, some, we're of the, adding, some of the issues with variable hoisting. Right. Yeah. You can you can add features and you can remove some features that pretty much no one uses. Like you can't use with and strict mode, I believe. And you, but you have to opt into strict mode. And I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure you're going to have to opt into ES6 as well when it comes out. And, and this is the thing. You cannot break the web. If you break the web, then the web loses all its value. Right. JavaScript right. isn't the most popular language because it's the best language. It's the most popular because it's everywhere. And as soon as you don't run everywhere, you're no longer so awesome. But it can definitely it can definitely um, evolve. JavaScript right. as a language can definitely evolve, and we've seen that it's evolved it, it, already. It is evolved, and it's much better than it used to be. Yeah. So as paradigms become, I mean, it's kind of true. Like this, you're gonna you still got websites that were built in 1996 that are up and running, and you don't want to break those. I but, think that's broken already. <laughs> <laughs> but as we get along, uh, farther along, and people start. Uh, iterating and using newer features and the old paradigms and old features get out of place, then things get, you know, things get better, at least for develop- developers. Right. But, but for the most part, it bloats the language. It's very hard to mm-hmm. say, if I wanted to remove this from the language, it would never happen. Right. Right. Never. Yep. Yeah. So I, I How much of the web would you break with that? That makes sense. All of it. I kind of think of JavaScript as like a unicycle with an oblong wheel but an optional two second wheels that are the right size and a jetpack. <laughs> but then nobody wants to use any of that. And then whenever you say, oh, by the way, did you know that it has two regular size wheels and a jetpack? You always get some guy being like, no, don't do it. You strict is for noobs and you can't have octal. Keep the oblong wheel. You can learn. <laughs> nice. You know, so he has oh, the clawed hammer. And then JavaScript is this oblong wheel, but at least it has the redeeming qualities. But the big, a lot of the big leaders in the community are completely against the redeeming qualities. Hmm. What are you talking about? Octal is awesome. Okay, maybe outside of file system permissions, it's never, ever used. But that's useful in certain cases. Oh, and good right. news. The Node devs finally corrected Node so that you can now run Node in strict mode. There's actually a flag, dash dash strict mode, where you can run all of your node code in strict mode. So all the core modules are strict, compatible. Okay. So I think there's also some environmental reasons that make JavaScript hard. Okay. Uh, like tooling. 
and, and adolescence, but this goes hand in hand with both the language and the tooling. Um, the tooling is um, adolescent. I, I wanted to say infantile, but I, that probably would be unfair. But it's, our tooling is ad adolescent. Browser debuggers. It, in some ways, I went back to doing GTK Python because that's what I did before I made apps in JavaScript. And the nice thing about PyGTK is you got this nice, fairly clean language and this widget framework and everything works and it's great. And then in JavaScript, I got spoiled because I had WebKit Inspector. And I can inspect the DOM and I can set breakpoints and I can even say in Chrome, when anything mutates this property on this DOM element, set a breakpoint. And there is nothing like that for most of the native frameworks. So yeah, language-wise, the tooling's not very good for JavaScript because it's a very dynamic language. But the browser aspect of it is extremely mature. Ooh. And we've got I, some really good I, tooling that, there. I mean, I, I think that they've made some huge bounds forward, but debugging in the browser compared to debugging in a decent server-side uh, language, there's a, there's a significant difference in the quality of the tools there. Significant difference. I, I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, yeah. V8 has a debug protocol. You can run it from Eclipse if you really want. Yeah. No, oh, that's true. And you can do it from WebStorm. That's cool. I've I've seen, kind of seen it both ways. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen some of the um, some of the tools out there that seem to work pretty well for <coughs> Ruby or whatever I'm programming in. You know, on on any given day, and then um, I don't know. It, it seems like most of the JavaScript I do, since it's on the web end, I mean, I'm I'm looking at to a certain degree totally different things. And so it's really hard for me to kind of compare the tools. For the most part, I find them adequate on both ends, so I'm not really convinced that, you know, we're, we're lacking too terribly for JavaScript. Well, and it's not just, I'm not just talking about just like the debugger in the browser, right? Like testing frameworks are hugely adolescent compared yes. to server-side testing frameworks. That, that's At least the, all the ones that I'm familiar with. Like, and you, uh, just the ability to, to take a huge suite of tests and of that suite of tests, um, grab just a certain set of them and run just those. That's pretty much missing in every testing framework. Uh, at least at least the big three, QUnit, Jasmine, and Mocha. Um, I thought you could do that in Mocha. I guess it's just you one can, at a time. You can select one test or you can select the group that that test belongs to. And it really just does a grep. So then you're not even 100% sure. So you have a describe uh, with the, you'd have a list class and a, uh, a list, um, I don't know, list chair class, right? If you do a grep on list, you'll get both of those. If they if they have, you have a describe list and describe list chair, you're going to get them both because the way of the way that grep works. I want right. to just one, just my tests for list. But what if I want to run two tests from list and two tests from list chair? I can't do that. Now, why why is that, that hard? Because it's not like it'd be hard to hard. implement that. It wouldn't. It's not hard, but nobody's done it yet. So I, you know, the tooling is. It's there's nothing hard about that as far as doing it. Just nobody's done it yet because the tools are adolescent. They haven't been it's used. Just not enough. enough users, I guess. Not enough use. Not enough people complaining about it. Not enough. Hey, why don't we fix this? Now, speaking of tooling, I worked at Cloud Nine for a year, and as far as I know, that was the most advanced tooling for Node there ever was. And it was a full breakpoint debugger, and we even had very smart auto-completion that, that rivaled some of the stuff that Visual Studio and Eclipse do. <laughs> and it was really, really hard. We had to hire several people with PhDs to, to work on this because JavaScript's a very dynamic language. Right. 
I mean, if you think about it, there's nothing declarative about the language at all, for the most part. It's it's extremely procedural and function based. It's it's this big blob of references that just mutates state constantly. Right. And then how do you take that and extract structure from it? Well, here's a class with this method with these arguments that does this. Like, how do you write tooling for that? Right. It's hard. And, I mean, and V8 actually does a pretty good job. If you look at stack traces in V8 on a modern version of Chrome or, or Node, it can tell you what name this function had when it was set to the property and what name it was called from and if they were different names. And it does all this crazy analyzing of your code to, to guess what the name of that function is. Right. But language-wise, it's just a function. Right. It has no name. Um, another environmental issue I think that affects JavaScript makes it hard is the fact that it's just very often JavaScript is ancillary to the main development that's going on. You know, you're building a website, you're using the server side. So the JavaScript code is very secondary. And because of that, people don't give it due consideration. It wasn't it Crockford that said uh, JavaScript's the only language people feel like they can program in without bothering to learn it? That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of Rails developers I, who don't know Ruby. That's true, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, but anyway, would say you see what I'm saying? Language. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Very few projects are primarily JavaScript in the, in the grand scheme of things. Right. And, and also there's the history. Since, since it is everywhere and it's accessible to beginners, there are so many JavaScript developers in the world that really don't know what they're doing. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of another thing. Is I feel like, and this is my own personal opinion, and don't lynch me for saying this, I feel like there's two primary groups that program in JavaScript. Group A is me and the people that I uh, come from, which is some kind of a strictly typed server-side language. And you come to the JavaScript world and you know, you wonder where the IDE is and where the compiler is and these, who are these, what are all these closures and these idiots using closures and what are you kids doing, right? Hippies. Hippies, exactly. And then you got the script, <laughs> script kiddies that just barely graduated from college six months ago and they wouldn't know a best practice or a software pattern if it bit them in their hush puppies. So you take those two groups of people and the one group is so used to doing things one way that learning things a new way is hard. Right, And so learning to write JavaScript the way that JavaScript was meant to be written is hard. And for the other group, the, the younger group who grows up is growing up in JavaScript, and that's their primary language, they know the paradigms of the language very well. But when it comes to writing hard software, solving complex business problems, they haven't reached, they're, they're in their adolescence. And I read this, was listening to this great talk about um, something entirely tangential, but they talked about adolescence is premature maturity, where you act the way that you see mature adults act, but you don't understand why. That's what defines an adolescent, is <laughs> acting the way that you see an adult, an adult act, but not understanding why. You're just mimicking. And then as you grow older, become an adult, you start acting the way that you prefer to act because that's the way you prefer to act and not because you're mimicking something. It's, it's kind of, a, it was an interesting talk and I'm not explaining it very well, but uh, you know, we have that same issue where we got a lot of uh, this industry, a lot of JavaScript developers or people that, um, don't know what software patterns are. They they don't know they don't follow luminaries and say, hey, we solved a lot of problems. There's value in look, looking at how other people have solved problems and learning from them. They kind of you know it's a natural tendency to just poo poo what older people say. Um, <laughs> Not invented here. What's that? Not invented, Not invented here. Yeah. here. It's related. Yeah, exactly. But the problem is, is that for a company, you want to build a big JavaScript project. You can't go find a developer who's been developing it for 20 years 
just doing JavaScript because they're by the time they get old, and I, I feel like I can talk this way because I represent this group, then they're comfortable in what they want to do. They don't want to learn anything new, which I think sucks because that's why I got into programming was to be learning new stuff and doing cool stuff all the time. So you get developers with a lot of experience and, uh, that can benefit everybody else, and they don't want to do it. So you got to hire young kids who know JavaScript, but then they haven't gone through the pain that comes from not having a tested code base and um, not having CI in place. Yeah, there's definitely different groups merging there. Yeah, so it's just a, it's a funny thing. I, I really feel like that contributes a lot uh, to the pain of JavaScript as, as a so language as a whole. So it's, it's yeah. nothing to do with like the language and the semantics itself directly. No. It's just... No, just the ecosystem, just where we are. I mean, JavaScript is the future of what's going on. More innovation is happening in JavaScript than is happening just about anywhere else in our industry. Certainly, it's a product of, you know, percentage-wise of innovation going on. It's all happening. It's the Wild West. It's all happening here. And imagine how nice it would be if it was as cheap to develop single-page applications in JavaScript as it is to develop post-back pages in Rails or .NET or, you know, Groovy or whatever. Grails have you. Once right. it becomes that cheap and, and companies can, you know, provide this highly interactive experience at a really low cost... They're going to go there, and so that's when, that's where the industry. I believe that's where the industry is heading. And but until we get there, it's it's just a funny landscape. I mean, isn't that what things like frameworks like Ember are trying to do? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All I mean, right. For, well, for that use case, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we've kind of gone off on a tangent here, but <laughs> uh, at the same time, I, I definitely agree that, uh, you know, and, and we're seeing this in a lot of other areas too, you know, especially in the up and coming languages um, yeah. where, yeah, you have new people coming in who don't have the, the the depth of experience and don't know where all the pain is and haven't, you know, found that what, you know, Uncle Bob or somebody else says is, you know, generally right and a good idea. And so we, we kind of have to teach them, but at the same time, they have that that fresh outlook and that excitement for, for learning new things that, you know, we, we definitely need to see more of in the community. So one, one interesting thing related to the scope of JavaScript where you can run it is not all environments are the same at all. So I run JavaScript pretty much anywhere I can. And if you're doing JavaScript in node, then you know that you have ES5, you know that you have V8, you know you have all these built-in things, you have a built-in synchronous require system. That's one platform, that's one world. And then you do JavaScript in the browser for the general public, and you have to support all the way back to IE7. Then you have an entirely new set of constraints. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you're making WinJS apps in JavaScript. Well, then you have this entirely other set of constraints in this crazy WinJS API that mirrors the C-sharp APIs from Windows, but in a JavaScript-y, promise -y kind of way. And then you're doing JavaScript maybe in GNOME, because JavaScript is now the official language of GNOME apps. And the window manager is already written in JavaScript. Well, there you have SpiderMonkey, and you're using let and destructuring and JS 1.8 everywhere. So it's not ECMAScript at all. It's JavaScript 1.8. And technically, they're all the same language, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not. They're not the same platform at all. They have entirely different best practices. And... For a lot of the time in the history of Node, people were like, Node's awesome because you can now share code between the, the browser and the server. I'm like, you can share some, but they're not doing the same thing. They don't work the same way. Just because they happen to be the same base language doesn't mean you can share a lot. Right. Right. And, and so it takes context to communicate about what you're doing and where you're doing it. And, it. and it really confuses people because they're like, I'm a JavaScript developer and this is what's important to me. Why is this not important to you? Well, maybe because I'm doing something different. 
Yeah. You mean you're not in PhoneGap? Right. I mean, whereas in Ruby, most people are doing Rails or yeah. Sinatra or, or some sort of web server with blocking I.O. and probably a database. There's a lot more cohesion there. Yep. Or, or chef or puppet kind of thing where it's IT management, you know, but, but they're all kind of compartmentalized and they don't really have to share a lot. Right. I mean, we did node on WebOS to load your context from this crazy database. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no web server in sight. This was just using node for something else. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's definitely an interesting take on, on kind of the, I don't want to say fracturing of the community, but you know, the different interests that are there. In, in my mind, they're not one community. There are several communities that have something in common. Right. But we tend to lump them together in certain instances. And, right. And that's where the confusion community. comes in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we kind of need to get to the picks. Are there any other things that we've neglected? I mean, language-wise itself, just just go read Dave's book. He'll, he'll tell you all the gotchas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get a link to that in the show notes. It's a great book. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and do the picks. Um, AJ, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. You want to do a picks for us? Yeah. So first thing I'm going to pick is Sharpie. Um, I love Sharpies. I think that I'm not alone. I bet that there's a wide audience of our listeners that also love Sharpies. And today I'm going to pick a very special Sharpie that's near and dear to me. It is Sharpie Metallic Silver. <laughs> And the great thing about Sharpie Metallic Silver is, let's say that you wanted to run a really crude ad hoc ad campaign. You could just take some cardboard you got from like Amazon packaging, write on it with Sharpie Metallic Silver, put it under a black light, take a picture of it, and bam, you've got an awesome looking retro ad. Just saying. Can you also use that if you're at a like a, uh, the exit to a freeway? Uh, the exit to a freeway. Um, yeah. Cardboard I, with a Sharpie on it. Is that a good color for if you're standing at the exit to a freeway? <laughs> oh, oh no, I wouldn't recommend um, metallic silver for that. I'd recommend uh, maybe something different because metallic silver, at least this time of year in Utah, it's with all the snow and the light reflecting off the snow, you're not going to get as much contrast as you need. Unless you happen to be at night and have a black light as well, but then whatever your message is probably gets invalidated by the fact that you have a black light. Because <laughs> it's normally something like, I need food. Yeah. Uh, we'll use number, black light for food. That's right. That would, we'll rent black light, maybe. Um, so let's see. Uh, another thing, I, I came into the conversation, right, as you guys were talking about the, uh, what, what Tim? What did you call it? Self, self something functions, self calling, self calling function. Immediately, what, what did Dave call them? Well, if yeah, he, those are the immediately invoked function, function expressions. Yeah, that's what he called. So it. I wrote an article on that and have a screencast with it, and um, the feedback I've gotten from it is that it's a pretty good explanation. So um, you can, you guys can check that out if you want to, and give me more feedback. And then also I found um, a unicycle that I think kind of embodies the JavaScript unicycle, except that its primary wheel is a regular shape. But I think it's good enough for illustration purposes, and and there's a link to that as well. All right. Awesome. Tim, what are your picks? All right, I got two. 
One of them is if you want to go off a rabbit hole learning math, try to understand how RSA really works. On the surface, it's just, well, you take this big prime number and you take it to the exponent of this other massive number modulus, this massive number. But how do you implement that in a computer that has finite numbers? Then it gets fun. So if you ever want to have a math rabbit hole, go go read up on RSA and click all the links in Wikipedia and come back to me in a month or two. And my my other pick is, I don't know how to pronounce this, Oya, Wea. It's a new game platform that's being built. It's based on Android, and the goal is is that indie developers can easily put games on this gaming platform. Because it's really hard for indie developers to get games on like Nintendo or any of the existing any existing platformers. And so this is just a $100 box that plugs your TV, and I think it's neat. I've been trying to make these kind of platforms for years and never done well, so I, I like it that someone else is making one. Awesome. Hmm. Joe, what are your picks? Um, so my first pick is going to be the game Borderlands 2. It went on sale on Steam for like half price uh, about a week ago. I picked it up and I've been really having a lot of fun playing that one. So highly recommend it, of course. I think that's pretty obvious that it's a pretty good game based on the reviews it's getting. Um, I want to pick MechWarrior Tactics. It's in closed beta right now, and if you pay $20 to become a founder or more, then you can get into the beta. And I'm interested in checking it out, but I have this problem with freemium games, so this is like a half pick, right? Like, if anybody listening has played it and thinks it's actually really fun, then let me know, because I'd like to pick it, but I'm afraid to pick it, and I'm afraid to pay money for it. <clears throat> and for my last pick, um, just this last week, I published my second Pluralsight course. It's on testing JavaScript, client-side JavaScript, uh, at Pluralsight.com. And so if you're interested at all in testing Pluralsight JavaScript, you can, or testing, sorry, testing client-side JavaScript, then you can pick up a free week trial and uh, watch my course and not have to pay a penny for it. Awesome. All right. So my picks this week are um, some picks that I've gotten into with, uh, um, with peep code. Do you guys know what peep code is? Yes, they're awesome. Yeah, they do videos. Um, screencasts. Screencasts. Oh, I know Tim knows what it is because he has a play-by-play on there. Um, but Jeffrey Grossenbach runs it. He's a super awesome guy. He used to run the Ruby on Rails podcast. Um, he's He's been doing videos like this for a long, long time. And they're usually some kind of tutorial on how to get into something. Their most recent one is fireupember.js, and it has all the latest stuff from the Ember uh, code, the new router, all that stuff. Um, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I just bought it, and I am excited to go through it. So um, I, I'm going to recommend that. I, I'm also going to recommend another one, and this is something that I've kind of gotten into more recently, is DevOps. Um, and, and the thing I like about DevOps is that, you know, it takes a lot of the pain out of, um, setting up and managing servers, which I did for a living a while back, quite a while back. Um, you know, you can keep everything up to date with it. You can tell it what versions of what packages you want and things like that. And so I bought their Meet Chef series as well. And so there are two videos there. I'm going to put those up. I don't remember how much they cost. I think they're like 10 bucks a piece or something per, per video, or you can, just sign up for their unlimited subscription and just watch all of their stuff. Most of their stuff is pretty good. It's easy to follow. Um, Jeff does a terrific job pulling it all together. And um, I think he has people help him with a lot of these. So they they do a lot of the recording and then he does the narration. And uh, it's uh, they're, they're terrific. They're, they're just super. So um, 
I'm going to recommend those two videos and we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, guys.